So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. Hey. Yeah. Real quick on on your sleeping stuff. Have you ever you ever heard of something called grounding? Grounding? I don't. I don't. Yeah, think or so. grounded your body. Oh, great. Yeah, I've heard of that. How the hell do you dig into that? I just seen it on Instagram and <laughs> checked it. Was watched. You need to go watch that Clint Ober's video that he put an hour and a half video or an hour video out where he uh, he was the guy that discovered it. And these scientists wouldn't give him any, anything at the beginning. But I'll tell you what, I have a grounding mat on my bed. It's unbelievable. When I don't have, I've been doing some tests like where I won't use it for two or three days just to kind of try to prove it to myself. And then I use it and it's like unbelievable. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, I don't know. I think they have a kit or something. It's like a couple hundred bucks or whatever. If it's the same yeah. thing I'm thinking about. Well, it's the same thing as going out and standing in the grass bare feet. Yeah. Yeah. It puts electrons up into your body and they have a lot of cellular repair. It helps you sleep. Cuts down a lot of inflammation. Yeah, the inflammation part would be good as well as the sleeping for me. I'm, uh, yeah, that's, especially that's the main thing. <clears throat> oh, yeah, especially I'm as I li sore. lift heavier, or shoot too many arrows yeah. in a day. Fuck my life. The next day my elbows are killing me. Yeah, and this stuff, dude, I'm telling you, it works. Yeah. The, you should uh, look the, into it. Uh, yeah, I'll order it. Um, all right. We're recording, so it actually is working. We made it past a minute, so I don't know what the fuck is going on. But all right, here we go. I'm not touching. My phone's on the counter. I'm not touching it. It's <laughs> weird. Um, all right. What's up, everybody? I've got a longtime friend and a very accomplished tournament archer, hunter, and uh, probably the most knowledgeable person in archery that probably, I don't know, I, I, that I've ever known and certainly probably in the history of bow hunting. You like to tinker, but that's Tim Gillingham. What's going on, man? Oh, not much. Finally Just got a week off. <laughs> yeah, we got a week off. I've been on a three, three tournament schedule in a row. You know, we did. Uh, well, maybe it's four. Shoot, I don't remember. Did an ASA, then Reading, then Gator Cup, then the IBO kicked off. Had a guest yardage last weekend. It went out pretty. It went pretty good, actually. I I, I saw. So, I, I follow along. Uh, you had uh, you said you struggled a little bit the first day and then put the heat on the second day, didn't you? Nah, well, I mean, I shot the exact same score two days in a row. I just shot the bow better the first day, and I didn't shoot my bow very good the second day and judge better. But I don't know. The pro biggest problem I had was I have launched no less than 10 to 12 arrows over the target in the last week and a half bumping my trigger with a little modification I did to my trigger. And so I was a nervous wreck. I mean, I, I did, I did it four times while I was there and I did it the morning of the second day on the practice bales and I could not relax on my release. I was afraid I was going to dump one out through the woods. Yeah, that's not, that's not good. Um, well, before we hit the release portion of it, as you're talking about that, uh, just real quick, um, tell everybody, I mean, pretty much everybody knows you, but uh, worked at Gold Tip since Christ was a kid, been hunting forever, but tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a 
almost 54. I've been doing this stuff for 40 years. And I don't really do anything halfway. So, I mean, I, it, it's been kind of a, a love affair with, I'm, I'm a tinker, I guess you'd say. I love to, uh, I love to find new things, you know, and I guess the anticipation, you know, that that brings and, you know, looking for better ways to solve problems in archery. That was a big part of the Hamsky rest, the site leveling system. That was my first patent in archery. And I had to learn all that stuff the hard way, you know, and you know, most things I've learned in archery, I had to learn the hard way because I lived in Alaska and Wyoming. There was really never any authority. And, you know, I watched the progression of archery over the last, you know, 30 years. And now we can plug these kids into it in the prime of their life. And you're, you're starting to see some of them just really take off at a very early age. So, you know, I've been bow hunting all over. Like I said, I lived in Alaska for eight years, got to do you know, all the Alaska bow hunting, you know, killed a doll sheep with a bow finally right before I left. Three days before I moved, actually. So no time like uh, last minute. So <laughs> um, I would love to go back and do that again, but and they're high dollar. Yeah, I'm so, going going up this year to help out on some stone sheep hunts. Those are up to $85,000 now. And uh, that's, that's it's crazy. nuts. Yeah. I, I, I made a <laughs> I made a comment on Remy's. I think it was Remy Warren posted that he didn't get a shot on a stone sheep hunt, and I'm like, "Tell you right now, if I didn't get a shot on a stone sheep hunt, there's one of two things wrong. Either they're issuing too many permits, which they probably are, and the guide sucks. Yeah, ain't doing his job. Yeah, it's, and it, it's an I, expensive risk." <laughs> Well, I mean, I've actually literally, you know, been privy to guides talking about certain guy comes to camp, they're just going to put him on such and such a mountain, they don't give a crap if he killed anything. You know, and I don't know. And boy, you ought to see how a couple of them guys on that post crucified me, and I'm like, dude, you live in a different freaking world, obviously. It's, it's, they call it hunting, it's not killing. I'm like, well, yeah, but... You're hiring an outfitter to find the sheep for you. Yeah, I'm, you know? I, I mean, I don't, you know, obviously I don't guide up there. I mean, occasionally I go, but the way that we look at it is, you know, on a five-day hunt, what we're looking for or a 10-day hunt is, you know, for, for certain animals, you want one legitimate stock a day. You know, that's kind of what you're looking for. I, I feel you should be happy. Um, very happy with that, right? Or, or you should be seeing animals every day, and every third day you have a legitimate stock, depending upon the species. Yeah, that's yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah, that's absolutely reasonable. Yeah, especially for an eighty-five thousand dollar hunt. I guess maybe that's like a couple grand to some people, but they're not the people I hang with. Yeah, I know it's it's crazy, but. But with, with everything you've got going on, and, and we didn't bring this up in the last podcast as much as we should, so I want to make sure and touch on this. You kind of partnered up with a, a string company recently. Obviously, you were involved with the Hamski Rest and a ton of different info out there and uh, designing arrows, components, all that. But you, you, you've, you're you involved with a string company now as well, aren't you? Yeah. Um, Justin Ertle, you know, he's a i've known for years he's pulled the gold tip trailer around for me and helped me you know with the booth for quite a quite a bit of stuff but you know, he's owned a pro shop i mean he's a good shooter he's won vegas 
he mostly shoots bow hunter class, but um, he's a good shooter. He's won lots of stuff, knows his stuff. And, you know, there's kind of a, you know, one of the things about bow strings that kind of irritated me was it seemed like the bigger a company got, the worse their product got. And so the idea behind Mad Goat is just to build a company that's, you know, it's just small. It's just a small company, you know, that all the strings are built by Justin. You know, he knows how to build a good string. I mean, and, and you know, as a consumer that, hey, he built the string and he knows that, you know, knows that he's the one that built the string. So that, that just creates a better product. Accountability you knows everything. Accountability, and you know, one thing I've learned, you know, working for different companies, accountability and leadership is everything. Yeah. You know, I've been here at Gold Tip for 21 years, and I tell you what, when we had a good leader at the helm, what a difference. Yeah. So, well, and with this, you know, with the strings, and I get, uh, you know, a lot of, as you can imagine, when I do the like Q and A's and stuff, like, hey, you know what, mm-hmm. uh, what's, <laughs> what's, what's a good string, and and the thing that it, that'd be, I hate to put it this way, but it, you could, you could honestly, is it, a, is it a Friday night build? Is that, uh, it, you know, it could change right. exactly. from one week. Who built it? Yeah, it could change from one week to the next, and and I, because I've got really yeah, good. Yeah, well, I've got really good strings from all the manufacturers, and I've got some shitty strings. Uh, for, and people are like, "Well, what, what makes a, a bad string?" And it's like, well, when you actually go down the, you know, if you talk to a string uh, maker, you know, and and then you watch it, a string being built, you quickly see like, mm-hmm. oh, all right, well, what couple of those strands aren't as tight as the, you know, you've got, you know, an eighteen, twenty two, right. twenty four strand string, and eighteen of them are tight, and four of them are loose, or whatever. Um, that thing yeah. seats itself and it creates inconsistency, how they center serve and every, I mean, all of that comes into play. Well, it's not rocket science, but where people get into trouble is, is they, they, they're trying to fill all this dealer business and dealers aren't going to pay that much. So if they pay you 50, 60 bucks for a set of strings, you're not going to put the effort in of a, a string that you sold retail for, you know, a hundred dollars, 120, you know, and you can't. So you've got a, you know, a 10, $15 an hour employee that's, you know, turning and burning and, man, every, there's so many different aspects of that process, you know, that the tension needs adjusted here or there, the serving tension has to be just right. You know, Justin worked for one of the big outfits, you know, building strings. And he said, I'd go, I, he said, I could just listen and I could tell from the sound of the machine that somebody wasn't didn't have enough tension on their uh, their serving bobbin and and uh i walk over and tell them you know but but that's where it comes from you know it's just attention to detail and ownership because you know let's face it if you're making 15 dollars an hour it's just a job to you yeah so not everybody's wired to do the best work all the time no matter what those type of people tend to move up the food chain yeah, well, and when we're, you know, we're talking about, and so everybody knows it's Mad Goat strings, so check that out. But when we're, when we're talking about strings, other than the, the build of the string, obviously, one of the key things that people really have trouble wrapping their head around, I've found, which is um, maybe something I take for granted, is is knock fit um, on a string and the knock that you're using 
and uh, is 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 very important with consistent knock travel tuning flight, all of those things combined. And so I'll have people like literally filing their knock because it's too, I'm like, oh. just reserve it, man. You're going to blow your bow up or, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. or, or like I can hear it just <clears throat> snap on and I'm like, Oh dude, that's not good. Like, you, <laughs> well, and, yeah. and flight issues. I, so talk about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been working at Gold Tip forever, you know, so we can field lots of calls. I can't tell you how many times. Well, hey, do you have a knock that fits my string? I said, let me give you a tip, pal. A knock bolt's 20 grand, and a piece of string serving is a dollar. <laughs> Which one do you think we're going to recommend? <laughs> yeah. And people just don't freaking get it, man. It's just that the, the level of education from an archery standpoint of the average bow hunter is so infantile. It's crazy sometimes to think about, and it, it 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 just people need to take a little bit of personal responsibility. When you're ordering a string, there's two things that you need to understand. Number one, like you said, knock fit. You know the primary. You know when we designed all the knocks at Gold Tip, you know they're designed purposefully. Okay, I hate crappy knocks. Okay, it's like one of the pet peeves that I have, and and we. You know, early on, you know, they tried to build a knock mold in China. I remember I got these knocks in. They were for 22 series, and I'm, I got the Hooter shooter, so I went and tested them because I tested them, test all the knocks. And, uh, dude, they were hitting like 34 inches apart, but they were like noticeably different cavity to cavity. And I'm like, these things are garbage. So we went about building our own. And if you look carefully at most of the gold tip knocks, you'll see that the, the pinch point on the throat holds the knock right up against the string all the way through through the shot, even with almost the lightest fit you can think of. And everything's kind of tapered moving away. So the moment that it starts to leave the string, every surface is tapered to start clearing all that knock set stuff. And the main rule of thumb is uh, you want to kind of draw the bowstring back about a half an inch to an inch, let go, and that knock should cleanly come off string. It shouldn't, like, bounce a little bit and come off. It should just cleanly come off. And that's the main basic rule of thumb. You you also want to have the knock or the, the string to be able to rotate in the throat of the knock without pushing it all over the place. Those are the two litmus tests that I use. Some of that can be the, the tight-in knock sets you have inside of your loop. I kind of err towards too loose over too tight. I really don't see a lot of negativity as long as there's not any front and back slop you know there's one manufacturer knocks out here every knock they make if you snap it on the string there's forward and back play in it see that's fine as long as you're drawing the bow back and everything's pinched by your knock but the moment you let go you have no control over what's happening okay and if that knock is loose at that point and moving around it can move up and down in between those knock sets um, based on the knock travel of your bow, you know? And so I have actually seen in the shooting machine where I had any gap at all in my knock set, it would just string vertical groups. It'd be up and down, up and down, up and down. So yeah, knocks are extremely critical. And that's, you know, kind of lead me into another subject that is kind of a pet peeve and that's uh, lighted knocks. I mean, a lot of guys just don't understand the gravity of their knock. You know, I'll, I'll go to these local tournaments and guys will have two, two or three different arrows in their quiver or different knocks. And I'm sure they use lighted knocks that are 
15, 20 grains heavier than their regular knock, and they don't have any care or consideration as to how much that affects it. It's going to affect the tune. It's going to affect the performance. And uh, there's a couple, you know, lighted knocks on the market that actually kind of stand out. So I don't really use them myself because I just don't, like, feel this need. I, I'm an accuracy guy first, and most of them offend my sensibilities of accuracy. So, so let, I don't know. What's your thoughts? Let's rewind just a hair, and I want to make sure people really understand that I'm – I want to make sure we are beating this into the head of, of people. So you said you've got a couple litmus tests. One of the things that, that obviously this be safe when you do this, if you just snap a knock with no arrow attached onto your string and draw your bow back, if that knock just boom points straight to the ground, there there is an issue with that. You're having downward pressure on the arrow rest. You want that knock to still be parallel to the ground when you draw your bow back without an arrow on it. Now, don't dry fire your bow and blame me, but that's something to look at. When you, for example, we were shooting 50 degree angles at this class I just held. And when you are shooting parallel to the ground, gravity is working with you and your arrow is laying on the rest. When you start to go to that 40, 45, 50 degree angle downward, a lot of other things start to shine and that's one your your bow being level your form things like that but also you'll start to see your arrow depending upon how you've set your bow up and if it's set up correctly especially knock pinch you'll see that arrow start to come off of the rest and people won't even know so i set that that specific phase or that 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 run for people to they were blowing over the top of the target and it was like six yards straight down and for the life of them they couldn't figure it out and one of it's the yardage you know what the yardage is and knowing that and then two i could see some of those guys were shooting their arrow was a quarter inch off of their rest when they were aiming that steep yeah yeah it's important to create you know tie your knock set in your i just did a video on my instagram not too long ago explaining that um you know i typically tie about the ratio of uh, one to four. So I do about three ties on the top inside the loop, just enough, you know, just enough so that it's not contacting the loop as it wants to rotate. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I want a nice clean rotation of the string in the throat of the knock without it pushing the knock around. But then I'll, underneath the knock, <clears throat> I tie somewhere between three times to four times as much. Now, if it's a short axle axle hunting bow, I'll go actually four, like four times because it creates more of a flat spot at the back of the string. And so you get a lot less string pitch. Okay. I've been in pro shops that they just do a couple ties above, a couple ties below. I don't think people have a method to their madness. Um, I guess probably I see a worse end of it at my draw length, you know, cause there's a lot more string pinch at 33 and a half than there is uh you know, I'm shooting a 33 inch hunting bow at 33 and a half inch draw length. I mean, and, but like you said, yeah, you want to create that, that, that knock set that's under the arrow, under the knock inside the loop is the one that creates down pressure. The top knock set is the one that makes it lift off your rest. Okay. So a lot of guys, their solution is to leave a gap in there. And I think it's a horrible idea because if you do leave a gap, then you've got to have tight knocks in order to keep it from moving around while it's firing. So, 
Yeah, I mean, all, on that. all of those. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is me tuning, a, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere up here. There's a couple local pro shops, not really in depth and tuning it other than a, a base sure. level. And so, uh, you know, I, as you, uh, you know, obviously you're, you're way better at this than I am, but I see everything. And I'm like, you know, and I'm trying to be polite when people bring a bow in and I'm like, uh, where'd you have that set up? And I, you know, they tell me, I'm like, well, and then I'm like, okay, top to bottom. And then I just run through, okay, everything that's wrong. And, you know, let's say they're, t- you know, when they shoot, they're tearing whatever, three inches, knock high, left, right, wet. And the first thing is the knock pinch. And they're, the first thing they're like, okay, I'm, should I go buy new knocks? And I'm like, no, we're going to reserve your, your bow. Um, there's nothing, I'm not going to follow you to the store and snap knocks on every, you know what I mean? Go see which one fits best. Like we're just going to bump it down because you have different diameters of serving. Okay. Well then the next thing, like I have found, and you, you might argue with this when you're in that 27 and a half to 29 inch draw length, it's not as vital tying in knock sets above and below as it is when you're especially a longer draw. And I'm not saying you shouldn't tie them in. Yeah. Go ahead. You're, you're right. It's just a string angle. So to a certain degree, you're right. Yeah. But, you know, like, I just do everything the same. Of course, that's what I found works for me and my draw length has never changed. So, yeah. Same. And I mean, I don't have to tie those in, but I do not. You know, I'm a T-Rex. I got great bench press, really shitty draw length. Like for my, my size, I guess I'm just, you know, 28 and three quarters. But it's not as big of a deal for for me but i will say like when when you start looking at let's say how somebody center serves a bow if they run the tail in under the serving the entire way like i back serve well that's inconsistent knock pinch if that's rotating if you've got that serving spinning around underneath your serving you know depending upon how you yeah if if i want to really fine tune my serving diameter i will never run the tail all the way through because it kind of takes the serving out around what I will do is cut some bowstring material and lay pieces in there. But yeah. then it tends to mesh in and and and, uh, and be a more round serving per se. Because you don't want like if you have that tail in there and it's just kind of you know spiraling around the, the serving, that knock that 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 serving cannot rotate freely in the knock. Correct. So one one other thing I'll talk about too when we talk about that knock test. Just use some logic, right? If your arrow is 300 grains and you're drawing, you know, and, and, and you take an example, an arrow that's 300 grains and an arrow that's 500 grains coming off the string. One has more inertia than the other. If I'm running a 300 grain arrow, one of the things I always tell women is make sure you got clearance and make sure your knock fits very light because both those things can affect that lighter arrow a lot, a lot more than they'll affect that heavier. I mean, you could nick your rest a little bit, maybe coming out with with a uh, you know five hundred grain arrow. It might not affect it as much. It's probably why so many people shoot freaking QEDs. I can't figure out how to get them things out of the way fast enough. But I'm, uh, with they're just you. so bo- not a fan. There's just so borderline on clearance, you know. Well, and I, if you want to test what Tim's talking about with a three hundred grain arrow, shoot a whisker biscuit and a drop away. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of whisker biscuits, but with a three, a light arrow, that full containment is much worse on a lighter arrow than if you go to a heavier one. And it's still, I'm not a big fan of the full biscuit, but 
you it is a, it is amazing when you watch and you know I have high end cameras you film that it it will freak you the fuck out of what's going on I know I just my 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 friend Russ Richardson and Corky Richardson they're very successful bow hunters their whole family is now it's all they use but and his mother and wife have killed tons of big bulls with 300 grain arrows and magnus stingers man that his mother actually was the first bow hunter to kill all the species of arizona with a bow and yeah she shot brown bears she shot moose and people just freak out about all this arrow weight stuff but so much of it's because one thing I encourage people to do is go shoot tournament archery. I mean, get involved in tournament archery. This is where you're going to learn this stuff. They're the experts. It's no different in rifle shooting. The tournament shooters are ones that give you all the information for high-end hunting. I mean, I tell people hunting is the easiest thing I do with a bow. But I train with my hunting bow so that when I do get that one opportunity, I can make it no matter what it is. Well, let, so let, many people just like go out in the field with the expectation that, well, I'm going to miss a couple, but I'll kill one. You know, well, it, I, I do believe a lot of people like that. There's a hundred percent. There's people like that. And this, this course we just ran and I'm going to a hundred percent agree with Tim. And I'm going to give examples when you talk about the cast of your arrow and, you know, learning from, from tournament archery one, you learn angles, you learn leveling, you learn all that. The other thing is, you know, and, and people may disagree with me on this, but I, you know, and I, I get it, but I will take this shot. If I've got a deer at 45 yards and I've got uh, something in the way at 35 yards covering its vitals, but it's 35 yards away, you know, tournament archery is what helped me learn in shooting a bow. Like I'm going to go ahead and shoot because it's going to launch over the top of that arrow with no problem. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it was, you know, it's, knowledge has kept me from taking shots yep you know i remember the first chance i ever had at a bull elk and same thing it was a there was this branch and i knew it was just halfway there we were shooting old slow bows old golden eagle hunters you know and uh i just knew it was going to smoke that branch so i didn't take the shot and didn't get the opportunity i also remember one time up on the grays river in wyoming same same bow, I think. Me and a buddy are elk hunting. It's opening day at four pointer better deer season. I got a tag and I come around the corner and there's a just picture buck, right? Double drop time, 28 inch mainframe, probably, maybe 30. Just max for days. Just standing there at 50 yards. And this is a way before range finders. I had a hot shot release, you know, 50 yards scared me, you know. And uh, it was just. I looked at that thing, I dropped my release, and I turned around my buddy, and I'm like, man, I don't know, that's pretty far. I said, and I I dropped my release, I said, if I pick it up and he's still there, I'm going to take the shot. I picked the release up, he just flicked his tail and walked off, and I just, I mean, that's been, that's been 35 years, I still have that picture in my head. (laughs) Well, with what Tim's talking about, and I I brought this up, and I try to explain to people, I'm like, I got a, I got a bullet 60. And I can see there's some limbs in the way. I range those limbs. And one of the limbs at 30, I draw back, put my 60 on that bull, my 30-yard pins on that limb. I'm aiming at that limb. I learned that from tournament archery, right? That's I learned that from yeah, shooting sure. targets. And you're, people are like, what now? And I'm like, look, even though in your mind it doesn't make sense, if your 30-yard pins on a 30-yard limb and you're aiming at 60, Jesus does not move the arrow. You're hitting that limb, guaranteed. And that's all from, right. from tournaments. 
yeah, your arrow's below your line of sight too. I mean, I'm <laughs> my buddy. I'll throw him under the bus because this is probably the biggest buck we ever had a chance at in Nebraska, and I'm over his shoulder, and we're shooting from behind a fence. And I'm thinking, does he see that fence? <laughs> and this is like 75 yards, and he's he's pretty good after that. He took his time, dude. He just just chose to ignore the fence. He made a conscious choice to ignore the fence and you know what happens when you take chances (laughs) (laughs) he smoked it oh i was sick that was a monster well talk about that last year oh go ahead i did it last year i'm one of the biggest bucks i've ever had a chance at i i chose well I was going to bring up for that, that Bushnell actually has a rangefinder with that holdover or with that arrow flight trajectory in it. Yep. So if you could have a setting where you can actually tell where your arrow is going to go. So for guys that are really not in tune with it, it kind of helps them. Yeah. Flight path. You, know, type you and I, thing. I mean, yeah, you and I shot enough that we kind of just know, or you got a good enough feeling or you'll just duck down a little bit to give yourself more clearance. You'll aim in the branches so that the arrow will clear them, you know? Well, well, talk a little bit. So I want you to cover this because you're better at explaining it than me. But when the arrow leaves the bow, it is below your line of sight, which is why when something's at three feet, you shoot it for 80 yards or whatever. That is. Well, sure. See, the arrow. Exactly. And this is, I give people a tip just so they don't ever make a mistake again, because I learned everything the hard way. So when I go to a local tournament and they, uh, they always like to throw these little two-yard shots on you. Well, everybody's in everybody's mind that they're they're they think they're supposed to be shooting this thing for the straight line distance. So if you're standing up on a platform and you're four feet off the ground and the target is two yards from you, people shoot it for two yards, whatever their two-yard sight mark is on Archer's advantage. Which, because of the fact that your arrow is below the sight. I might shoot that thing for, if it was two yards, I would have to shoot it for around 98 yards at 295 foot a second. Now that changes for every speed and every drawing. Okay. Or wherever is your sight to your, 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 your peep to sight distance and, and, and your peep to, to, uh, arrow, you know, triangulization. So it's going to affect that some, um, but in reality, you literally have to shoot it from the measurement from your eye to the target. So if you're elevated, it might, that two yard shot might shoot for 11 feet versus nine feet. And that's how you do it. So I always carry a like a disto tape measure for these. In fact, I was witness to this at Reading this year. Bodie Turner, who won Reading, missed the three yard shot. Okay. And he did it. He missed it because he just got impatient. You know, I guarantee he will never. He's 16 years old, and he will never miss that again in his entire archery career. I promise you. But because I'm standing on the left side of the line, and I told everybody, well, it's eight feet here because it, it was a three-yard target. Yeah. And so I shot it for eight feet and dead-centered it. Well, he just jumped up and I think shot it for eight feet instead of actually measuring it because he was at the very other end, and he was shooting kind of angled. And he ended up missing it. 
that really kind of chapped his butt a little bit. But uh, it's just a lesson. You know, he will never make that mistake again. He will be prepared. So you just have to, on those short shots, until you get out to, like, if you notice on site, if, if you've been involved much in archery, you'll notice that around 280 to 290, 10 and 20 yards is going to be the same because that's kind of where the arrow, that arrow and sight plane come together. Okay. Yep. So that's why when you're shooting inside of those distances, like if your top mark on your sight takes 15 yards, then anything less than 15 yards, you're going to have to shoot for more yardage because your your arrow sitting it's not into that plane yet. So it's not it's more of a tournament archery thing. Well, um, I I shot my mule deer. I would disagree yeah. with that when you have shit in front of you in hunting, and and when I say that, meaning well, maybe yeah, the mic. The minutia of it, you need yeah, you to know to. when it's going to clear. <laughs> yeah, well, you got to have that spidey sense. You got to be able to look down, and it's so, it's so much of it's just freaking common sense. Okay, you know, s- slow down. You know, just look at it. You know, you can aim. You know, if my buddy would have just like put the arrow between a thing in the fence, a wire in the fence, and then just looked at his sight. He could have moved his body up or down. He could aim on the wire and line the deer up with the wire and his arrow was underneath it. So I, I tell you probably the best thing to teach that is smoker rounds, man. I mean, we shoot these rounds over here in Utah and or- Oregon and stuff. They're called smoker rounds. You got one arrow and uh, um, they just try to break that arrow at all times. You got 10 shots and they just set up super hard holes and things like that in the brush. And I mean, it, it taught me a lot, man. I, I remember one deer I shot up on the Wasatch front. I remember I'm sneaking in full overwhites in about three feet of snow. And I look over to my left and I see this buck and he's staring at me and he's about 50 yards and there's just one little hole into him. And I, that, I did exactly what you're talking about. So I needed my arrow to go through the hole. So I ducked down low so that I'm actually got the, the bottom of that hole lined up with his, where I wanted to hit him. And the arrow just arced right through it and smoked him. So yeah, you gotta be aware, very aware of your trajectory. And if you have a ranch ferry trajectory, God help you. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Cause I, I want to make sure like the, you know, you get the big dickathon thing with the light arrow and the heavy arrow and everything in between. And to me and everybody knows I'm more of a happy medium. I don't go crazy lightweight. I don't go crazy. I'm a 280 guy. I want to be around 280. So People, you know, when I've talked about this before, when you have a set, a, you know, you have a feeder in front of you, you have whatever in front of you, that is a lot different than being very nimble on the ground in, in, in controlled environment. Thank you. Controlled environment. And, you know, so Tim and I have hunted together and and Tim's hunted all over. So have I, and you are not always going to have flat ground. You're not always going to have a wide open shot in front of you. And people have said, well, I want to shoot it to me. They've said, I want to shoot a really heavy arrow. I brought this situation up. They're like, well, I'll just pass. Well, why the fuck would you do that when you can kill it? You know, like the the arc of the arrow doesn't mean to go ahead. People are ignorant. Okay. They're just, just plain ignorant. They don't know anything. So they're susceptible to everything. And I had a couple guys over here. Where was I talking to these two guys and everything I told them contradicted everything that they, they heard on the internet. And they were like, well, they're like, what's your FOC? I'm like, well, I don't ever measure it. Doesn't matter that much. And I've shot deer at 120 yards with 7% FOC. They don't never know the difference. So, but they just don't have any, like, 
real understanding of their systems, you know, of their bow. And I shoot speed because I think the number one problem a bow hunter has is still the distance to the target. You know, single pin bow sights are this, this new rage, you know, people are into them now they found them or something, you know, and I will give you, you know, I'll give you uh, credence that a single pin's more accurate, but it's not practical. Hunting systems should be practical, okay? I run seven pins on a mover, and they start at 40, and they run 40 to 100, because my experience has told me that's going to give me the best chance for success. I don't very seldom have time to range it, set my sight, make this nice, perfect shot. It's usually happening quick, you know? And so... I shot my buck last year in Nebraska at eight yards with a 40 yard pin. But you've got to, once you build systems like that, you have to learn how you got to get out and get fluent with them. Dive into that more because how I explained it at this class was you want to, when you, the more you learn, the more you'll find you're writing your own book. And when I say writing your own book, I like five to seven pins in a Rover. I, I like, you know, like uh, one of the new sites on the market, uh, the Canyon Pounder, I like that center pin, the the concept between, you know, my middle pin that is centered perfect in the housing is my Rover, where in past years, my bottom pin is my Rover. That's not as accurate. But what I'm trying to say is, as you get going, I don't like, I like to start at 20, even though it is not needed, meaning I really don't need a 20 yard pin or even a 30. Um you know, because it's technology speed, right? I know what my drop is or whatever, but I've gotten comfortable with it and I'm too chicken to change because under the moment of truth, I might screw that up. But well, you're right. That Don't do that. I'll give you a story on that. So I was up hunting elk in Idaho and I was doing what you did. I had a, my, my bottom pin was always the mover and I like it because it sits right above the level. And I had to set this bow up kind of, I don't, didn't take enough time with it. It was pretty critical. It, it was, if you creeped, it would shoot high. And uh, it was just very critically set up. And I missed a freaking elk. I mean, flat freaking missed them because I creeped. And I didn't center up, I think. And so I went home and... I said, okay, I'm going to the middle pin now because that's a more natural center, like you said. And I practiced for two or three days, went back up to Idaho, and I, I got on this bull. I chased this bull for like three miles across his front, and I was just smoked. And he, I finally caught up to him, and I'm, it was a long shot, and I was looking straight into the sun. And at the moment of truth, guess what I did? Yeah. <laughs> I threw down and aimed with the freaking bottom pin and shot 20 yards over his back. And that was just a good lesson. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be the most accurate, you know, it has to be the most practical and accurate. Okay. I personally still run a black gold seven pin pro site with, with the bottom pin always green because I see green the best. And I kind of work upward from there. So I go green, yellow, two greens, yellow, and two greens. And that way I always, only thing I have to remember are the two yellows, okay? And I run them 40 to 100. And every pin in my sight is there because I got busted, right? 
I, I didn't get a deer that I should have got it because I didn't have enough pins, you know. My doll sheep was a prime example of that, and it's kind of a cool story. So I drew this, including a doll sheep tag, the last year I lived up there, and I, I went up there with a target sight on my bow with a single pin sight because, of course, it's more accurate, right? And I had the first Bushnell rangefinder, and I knew there's something was wrong with it. And I knew if I added 10%, I was good, right? Well, it was on meters. I just didn't know. <laughs> didn't read the directions, obviously. And so I sneak up on this sheep, and I mean, it's like the most perfect stock ever. He's 48 yards. I add four yards to it for my 10% and blew a chunk of hair right off the top of his back. And I was just sick. I was like, I don't miss like that. I don't miss. And he jumps up, moves a few yards, and I just said, okay, I got to hold that pin a little high. And I hit him. I mean, I was just, I had no basis of comparison as to what 10 yards was, right? And I clipped his ear, and I was just sick, man. I was just – and I was gone for like two weeks because I was trying to get out of the state, and my brother got me a job on the railroad, and – um, they kept me down there for two weeks. I got home and I had four days to hunt. I get back in there and it, you know, I seen seven or eight rams up on the night before and I was just getting all excited to get up in the morning and it's just pea soup fog. And this is on the other side of the mountain from where I was. And, uh, I could see one sheep kind of in this little spot of fog. And so I'll just go up there. Hopefully the fog will clear and I'll be into him. And I ended up sneaking up on this ram, made an epic shot, 40 you know, 46 yards at a 55 degree slope. And the only way I made that shot was because of what I learned in target archery. And, uh, but coming out of that, after I'd missed that sheep, I ran, in, I ran into a guy on the trail and I had checked my rangefinder with his and now it was right all of a sudden. And I'm like, what the hell? And what had happened is it just basically it got pressed in my pack and had changed back from meters to yards. And anyway, so I shot this sheep and uh, I get up to this sheep and he's got a chunk of hair missing off top his back and his ears clipped. <laughs> that was him, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was him. On, he's on the, completely on the other side of the mountain. So pretty good story. Well, well, you know, with what we're, you know, we're talking about like, um, uh, you know, knowing your bow, let's, I want to dive into a few more things. Cause this, I don't want this to turn into a three hour podcast and I got a bunch of stuff to bounce off of you. One, one of the things, and I'll say, I, I would, um, I am, I'm not a, I, I, I'm not a commander of the shot, so to speak. Like Tim, Tim kind of, um, you're, I guess you would say you command the shot or a controlled punch. Um, you know, I've shot a hinge for like you. Go ahead. I like to refer to it in archery as fine wine. <laughs> fine wine. <laughs> Old punchers never die. So that's what I'm leading up to. I would agree with Tim now that I'm getting um, up up in years. And, you know, I still work out. And I'm, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't hold as steady as I once did. And when I say that, um, you know, I'm not comparing myself to some of the great archers like, like Tim and Levi. But, I mean, you know. Uh, you know, 80 yards, softball, 100 yards, paper plate. But now I've recently started shooting kind of a modified, um, it's called, a, it's, it's a Scott Verge, but it, it basically is, 
kind of a, a hybrid, but I'm not holding as well as I used to at longer distances, especially, right? I notice it more there. And so, you know, I still want them in there, but going from a hinge, um, you know, at a hundred, I'm going to have three or four good shots and then I'm occasionally going to fling one out of there and, and, and I, I'm not just holding as steady. And so the release I've been using, it's kind of, it's a wrist strap, but it basically, you, you, you rotate it till it clicks like a hinge. And that's what I've gotten so used to. My brain's kind of programmed with that. And then I just punch it off. Um, it helps me stay under control. So I don't, I don't ginch, but you've shot every release known to man and done, been successful with all of them, but you, you consider like your, you like to control the shot and, and punch it. Talk about your system with that. But it's not really punching per se. I call it basically it's a sight picture firing the shot. And if you delve into the high level, multi-positional rifle shooting, air rifle shooting, um, I would, you know, suspect that the very top shooters all shoot that way. Um, Lanny Basham, when I went to see him, remarked to me that, you know, he just couldn't believe that so many people in archery shot this so-called surprise release. He said, it makes no sense. He said, he said, when we were shooting rifles, we were shooting a pencil eraser at 50 yards. You can't hold on that, but you can fire on it. And that's kind of the premise, you know, and that's why I said, you'll you always hear the back tension guys in archery comment that you can't beat a puncher when he's on, when he's on fire. That's because it's a more accurate way of shooting period. And I say that all the time. I proved that. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I proved that nobody taught me how to shoot. Right. So I really just shot the bow the way that I shot a rifle. Okay. And how I would shoot a rifle offhand. And one of the guys that I quote a lot is David Tubbs. You know, if you want to read an incredible book, if you're into rifle shooting at all, there's two books, High Power Rifle and The Rifleman. The Rifleman kind of comes after it. It's a lot more complete if you're into like NRA multi-positional rifle shooting. But what I the big takeaway from the book is how meticulous he was on building a position to cancel motion. So, my primary focus is I don't care about the release. I don't even think about it. It just has to be light, right? Whether it's a thumb button or a handheld or, I mean, or a wrist strap, it just has to be very light so that when my mind, when, when, those, when that signal or that sight picture arrives, it just happens subconsciously. And the last, that, the high part or the, the rifle or the, um, High power rifle. Oh God, I can't remember the name of the book now. I just said it, but um, the second book. And one of the things that he he quotes in there is that you want to visualize the acceptable sight picture before you shoot it. You know, if the wind's blowing twenty mile an hour, you don't want to visualize yourself holding dead still because that's not realistic. It's not going to happen. So that's the way you beat target panic too. People get target panic because they expect themselves to flinch. They're expecting that to happen. Okay. And they don't know how to manage it when it first starts. If they start getting anticipation, like Lanny said, Lanny Basham said, he said, we think we didn't deal with anticipation in rifle shooting. He said, we did, but we managed it. We didn't give people careers on it. People talk about target panic so much in archery that everybody's afraid of it. You know what I'm saying? And so when you start hearing it, it just gets worse. I, I make jokes okay. about so, it. I, I tell people it's like Voldemort. You know, you don't bring its name up. The more you 
concentrate on it, the worse it fucking gets, right? Like, I mean, the more people, oh, yeah. it, it it just manifests like a cancer. Well, it's the same thing in hunting. It's the same thing in, you know, I used to get really nervous in OR rounds and I'd go home and I'd try to come up with a solution and, and I'd just go back to the next tournament just on pins and needles, hoping it didn't hit me again. It would hit me harder and it hit me worse. And then I read this book called Panic Away. It was about how they treat panic attacks. And it really taught me what to do, you know, and and that was to, to, you know, you just let it run its course, you know. You learn that you can shoot with it. And if you learn to accept it, it will get less. It's still there. And and over time, I think you can you can learn to get rid of it. Some people do not experience that. It's just, that's just a fact. I watched people in archery for 40 freaking years. Some people shake when they get nervous and some people claim they're nervous, but I've never seen them shake. So those are the guys that end up in the shoot off at the, at uh, Vegas every year because they don't have a, I don't think there's a connection from their bow arm to their brain. I'm not real sure. <laughs> well, well, but, but they're type B people, you know, type B people don't analyze things. Their mind does not analyze. They're really good. And I, I use this example. So I won, I won Lancaster one year and I've been reading this book called the Silva mind technique. And he talks about the alpha, theta, beta part of the brain in there. And I, you know, I'm just, I'm not fluent with it yet, but, but I got to thinking about that. And I thought, you know, when I won Lancaster as a pro, I stayed out playing poker all night. I pulled a John Daly, you know, and I don't know if I drank and smoked as much, but, but I come in the next morning, I was kind of in a drone, you know, I only had an hour of sleep and I was in a drone. So that, that, that analytical part of my brain was not working. Okay. It was not in full overdrive. And I think that really helped me. And it probably was, give me an experience of more like what guys that are consistent indoor shooters, what's going on in their head. Not a lot. So, I mean, let's talk about that in, in hunting and target. Cause you, I'm sure you've got mm -hmm. the same thing where guys are like, man, I, I just black out. I, uh, you know, I shoot good on target and then I get an animal in front of me and I, 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 I don't even remember what happened. I, I suck. I've missed multiple animals sure. and you know, what do you do? And it's like, man, it really doesn't okay, matter. Well, Go ahead. Yeah. Well, you got to, number one, you got to be a student of the game. Okay. Once you understand, and this is what the panic away book and, and other things have taught me is that what happens when you get nervous, when you, when you have a fear or flight syndrome, the brain speeds up and wants to get rid of that feeling. Okay. So the first thing you have to do is understand what's happening. Okay. So that you can react to it properly. Okay. The first thing you want to tell yourself is slow down. Okay. The second thing you want to do is run a, just like David Tubb says, run a quick visualization of what you're about to do. Okay. I'm going to put that pin right there and smoke this deer. I'm going to watch the arrow go right through them. Okay. And if you'll do that one quick thing, and it can just be a quick thing, it puts your mind where it should be rather than where it shouldn't be. You're, 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 you're accentuating the positive rather than fearing the negative, okay? So the way you beat target panic, the way you beat all this stuff is to continually um, 
um, cultivate it. You know, you you may not get rid of it completely, that feeling, but if you if you'll visualize, like Lanny Basham said, uh, the mind does not know the difference between a visualized shot and a actual shot. So if you take the time to visualize yourself into control before every shot and after every shot, you will then have a much better chance of getting that. And you'll start to expect that out of yourselves. Okay. And it's the expectation. It's the self-esteem. That is the biggest factor. Okay. We fail because we, we always place ourselves right where we view ourselves and we can hide that under a mountain of bravado. And I see a lot of guys do that. I see guys that, you know, have been very successful archers, but it's based on bravado. It's based on keeping that engine going, you know, 380, you know, and not taking your foot off the gas because the moment you check it and the moment you quit, you know, question yourself, you're going to crash. And I've seen it over and over again. And I, I watched the shoot off at Vegas this year. And the first guy out was a type A person. And I said, well, they're all 26 type B's now. <laughs> well, it, it just happens over and over again. And it's just super hard for a guy that's analytical to, to deal with that kind of stress. And, you know, different games at Archer are different, you know. You know, 3D, there's a lot to think about, you know. And the target's small, and so your mind does not think about missing. You go to ready, and the dots are huge. The whole time, I, I'm shooting 140 shots feeling like I'm trying not to miss. It's like when you got a giant buck sitting there at 25 yards, the only thought in your mind is don't screw this up. What's the wrong freaking thought, right? That's going to give you the best chance of screwing it up. And, and I'm, one of the things I want to make sure people understand with this type A, type B thing, one, I strongly suggest you read about um, type A and type B personalities, and it'll you'll learn a lot about life. And a lot of times type A people, whether they're arrogant or confident, you know, if they're confident, they'll get accused of being arrogant or vice versa. But the one thing that, that I have found with a, a type A personality um, is is when you're talking, what Tim's talking about controlling the shot, you're going to find your own way to control it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm type A and I have found that, that uh, what Tim is talking about works really where I'm constantly visualizing what's going to happen. I'm, I'm not, you know, when I do these courses, right, I'm like, they're asking me a question. Hey, what if the animal, you know, gets out of its bed and walks down the hill? I'm like, I'm going to back up, circle around on top of that hill. I'm going to kill it right there. They're like, oh, that's simple. I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell you I hope I'm going to. Fuck, yeah, it's that simple. Like, I'm not entering it to fail, right? And I'm not saying that that's not an arrogance thing. It's like if I walk into that and say, well, I'm going to loop around and hope I get, uh, uh, hope I hit it. That doesn't really work for me, right? That's like, yeah, I'm going to get over there 78 yards. I'm going to kill it right there. I, 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 if you visualize that, it, it helps a lot where when you talk to the people that are really wavering, um, they have a lot more problems I've found, but... Yeah, they don't trust themselves. Yeah. That, you know, and that's why, you know, I spend all the time shooting in my backyard because I'm not going to get that much time to go hunting. So I want to be able to, I want to be able to capitalize on every opportunity I get. Okay. I don't, I don't have time to go out and miss and, 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 you know, I might not have, you know, even though I'd rather shoot them closer, I'm going to take the first available shot I, I know I can make. And the more I practice, the more, the longer I make that that ability 
Yeah, it's it's hugely important. And I I mean, hunting with a bunch of people and teaching classes and everything else. And, you know, I've said it when I glass a, a deer up a mile away, it's in a good spot. I'll say, man, that deer's going to die. And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, you know, you're that confident. And I'm like, well, I'm confident arrogance. I don't know what to tell you. But if I go into this thinking maybe, man, I hope it's just not the same. So I have tried to have that confidence at all times. And one of the things that... Kim's really good at this, but like when you, I set up a course for these guys and I say, Hey, do you stock in here? And it's a very technical stock. There's not a lot of wind, but you'll have a 20 yard shot. And the probability of anybody getting in there is not great. Option B, right. I've, I've got a 38 yard shot, but I'm exposing myself a little bit and I may catch the deer's eye or option C 68 yards. Deer has no idea I'm there. Well, 68 is too far for me. I get it. It's bow hunting. I don't want to dive into that. And I'm like, I'm killing it at 68. Like I'm not risking getting in on there because while you're thinking, oh, you're going to get closer and have a higher probability of, of, of hitting it. You also have a higher probability of that deer doing some shaky, you know, some blowing out of its bed. Um, you know what I mean? Movement. And then it pops up. It looks at the, now you're shooting at an alert deer. I'm taking that 68 yard shot. And I, I know Tim is cause it's not worth getting closer to me. And then people My are like, range finder says 68. The only thing I'm thinking is you're dead. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that is exactly, you know, and, and Chris Rowe was with me. Chris isn't, isn't a technical archer and he's like, well, just get closer. And I'm like, well, just learn to shoot. You can go back and forth on this, but the best option to have is learn archery and learn both have the ability and the I technical teach, knowledge. Yeah. I could teach a guy to do that in a, three or four days with today's, archery stuff if, if you delve into it and get the right instruction people will spend a fortune to go on a hunt but they won't spend two nickels to learn how to shoot that, that is my point exactly and and bill pellegrino and you know bill he said something on a podcast that i was very simple but very funny he said people obviously really overlook the fact that hitting the fucking animal is the hardest part of archery like hitting the damn thing, maybe not the hardest. I can't remember how he worded it. He was like, the, the, the bottom line is like people need to learn archery, you know, rather than, like you said, spending money on a hunt, spending money on gear, spending money, whatever, learning the art yeah, of, of archery. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to shoot a ranch barrier. So then when I miss, I got a better chance of killing them. What a moronic thought. Yeah. And, and that, know? that is difficult for me to swallow at times too, because it's like, well, you know, if I hit it in the T of the scapula, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, do the percentage. That is a small percentage of that animal, the T of the scapula. And I get to shoot a lot and, and shit happens, but you're probably not making it through anyway. And then somebody will pull up, oh, here's a photo of a guy that made it through. I'm like, oh, there's the one, right? Let me pull you up 400 oh, yeah. photos of guys hitting it in multiple other spots of the animal. So you, accuracy, arrow flight, tuning, yeah. accuracy is key. Yep, exactly. They act like nobody ever misses to the rear. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, you do the percentage. There's a far higher percentage yeah. of you hitting it back. <laughs> yeah. The reason I shoot big rear deploy mechanical broadheads is because I hit the first year I shot kill zones. I shot two does up in Wyoming. Both. Well, I don't remember if both of them were liver shot. I remember one of. I made two liver shots, I remember that year, and both of those animals didn't make it 100 yards. If I'd have been shooting a little fixed blade, it'd have been a lot longer recovery. Um, 
it, it's, I just absolutely, you know, I've hit them as far back as where the wind took it, hit them right in front of the hips with a big mechanical, and it, it was might as well heart shot them. Yeah. You know, it was, it was that devastating. So, and when, you know, when we're talking about this, cause I'm sure some people that are listening saying, oh, you hit it in the liver, you shot it too far away or whatever, you know, how people concoction on the internet. Yeah, whatever. yeah. The bottom line is though, you hit something with a 22 and you hit something with a uh, 338 Lapua, there's a big difference. So, and what I'm talking about is not arrow weight. I'm talking about the cutting surface. And so for, for me, and, and not everybody can shoot a two inch, um, cutting diameter broadhead. Uh, I mean, they can, but like shoot what's applicable to your arrow weight and draw length and everything else. But people constantly ask me like, Hey, I've, I'm shooting 70 pounds at a 30 inch draw and a, you know, 480 grain arrow. Can I shoot a two inch mechanical at elk? And I'm like, you can shoot a two inch mechanical at almost everything on the planet. Maybe, you know, not a rhino or a Cape Buffalo, but, um, you can shoot that at your, that setup. We'll, we'll go through the only thing you're not going if you can't get kill an elk with that you've hit it in a spot that you shouldn't have hit it with any setup and and i try not to grind this into people's heads too much but it's like guys and gals it i mean it, it is a lethal setup and if you hit it back i promise you especially when you're trying to track it a bigger hole is better right you sound like you're in deep thought what are you doing much yeah it's just I, I watch guys that just take all the effort in the world and shoot they believe in this and believe in that but i still remember the look or the the comment that jake jacobson made i finally talked him into shooting mechanicals right and he shoots this 397 bull with a and this guy's shooting 64 pounds with 340 green arrow and he owns Jake's archery, which is a big, was a big distributor here and been shooting hunting for 50 years, right? One Vegas with a recurve and a release, you know, that's aging yourself, you know? And dude, he crushed the, he said, Timmy, in 50 years of bow hunting, I have never in my life seen a blood trail like that. And he used the 2.3 kill zone, which I would never have told him to do with his energy level. Yeah. I'd have put him in the 1.75. And he has continued to use that broadhead ever since. In Africa, he shot a bunch of, you know, some knew he shot a sable and a bunch of other animals with it, but that's all he uses now. And, you know, I still, you know, I still even check myself. I mean, cause I mean, really how big a hole do you need? I I'm accuracy first. Okay. You know, things happen on animals and people overanalyze them. You know, Kyle shot a buck last year down in uh, Texas with a thorn and he didn't think he got good enough penetration, but I said, dude, look at how that animal moved. Okay. You know, imagine you taking a carpet, target and you swing it and you shoot it swinging versus standing still. Excuse me. My damn pollen back. He's killed me. Um, but those two penetration levels are completely different because an animal moving is absorbing energy. And, you know, I had a shot on an elk. It's, it's not, I killed in Montana a couple years. 
it's What's not that? it's not just absorbing it's also shifter shifting and and I I, I know that's what you yeah. mean but I want to make sure people understand this you get in up into the V <laughs> and the shoulder it blows out and shifts if you can imagine a pin going straight forward and then all of a sudden it hits something and then it shifts the, the ass end of the arrow is pivoting right. away you're losing the momentum of the arrow Right exactly and that's what happened to me on a bull this big bull I killed up in Montana 2 years ago it, when we finally found the thing, and I'm kind of lucky that I, it was an open burn and I saw him down below because it would have been a very, very rough recovery otherwise. It still was. Um, he went 1.4 miles, shot through completely through one lung and into the next. But when, I, when we <laughs> took the skin off of him, I noticed that that broadhead had hit the rib just off center and it, it kind of skidded down the rib and it, it must have just whipped as it went in, right? So, like you said, it redirected that energy and, and it lost a lot of its, you know, punch. And, you know, you'll get the guys that, well, if that was heavier, it would have did this and would have did that. And yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I shot two caribou with it last year and they went through like hot melted butter at 66 yards on both of them. So, well, the the question with that is, is the maybe there, there is no doubt whether you're shooting a mechanical or a fixed when this happens in, in a shoulder shifts, you're losing more minimum momentum. And the thing that people have to realize is if you're just going to default to one and not open the book of the other, it is very, very yeah. short sighted. Like, okay. So look at, you know, I look at, yeah, no, go, go ahead. Well, I look at the couple of, uh, I used to hunt Idaho. I had to use fixed blades. The first bull I ever killed with a bow, I touched that arrow off. I'm in a snow, you know, going up in blowing snow, 10 inches of new snow. And I finally got a shot. Rangefinder clicked 59 yards. He laid down, and I thought, I'm not getting smelled again. And I just put that 60-yard pin down against the rock and touched it off. And that broadhead planed off of there like it made me want to puke. And I... And I just hate six plates because of that. And I'm, 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 I trust me, I could shoot them as good as anybody in the world. I think I just got some ice on the arrow and it got, you know, because I, I pulled the next and lucked out and that broadhead hit him right in the base of the neck and broke his neck. And my next, next five arrows hit him in about a four inch group. <laughs> I remember it that was bull. Just, yeah, it was crazy. It was, well, it was crazy. And then another bull I remember. I shot with Sean Greathouse. Uh, he was a big old bull. Gosh dang, I killed two bulls that year. One was a raghorn six, another was this old six. He had an old muzzy broadhead stuck in his shoulder. And uh, guess what? It didn't make it through. <laughs> uh, but I shot this elk with a Grim Reaper Hades, and it was, it was 60 yards, 64 yards down, 63. I think that's the longest I've ever shot an elk was 63 yards. And I just, you know, it's so easy just to miss by six inches with a fixed blade broadhead, you know, because of the planing surface on the front. You're basically putting veins on the front of your freaking arrow. You know, you're putting veins we put on the rear of the arrow to steer the arrow. We put blades on the front of the arrow. They do the same freaking thing. So I try to limit that as much as possible. And but I hit that that bull in the liver and just happened to have, you know, good some good snow to and he didn't make it terribly far. You know, but he made it 
two or three hundred yards or two hundred and fifty yards or something like that. But uh, let's talk about this. Yeah, I tuning do. fixed blade thing, and I I want to I want to make sure people understand why this is so critical. Tim brought up some points. You're basically putting veins on the front of the arrow, and I'm I am not anti fixed blade. I am anti shoot what you're comfortable with, but I I am also anti learning. So Tim's in front of me, right? And we're shooting on my 120 yard course, right? And we're flat ground. And if you, Tim goes to full draw multiple times and I measured from his arrow to his bus cables and on flat ground, he is the same distance every time. That's what he's tuned for. We're shooting, you know, bullet holes with bear shafts and we're just great. And then we go to my Canyon in the back and I'm like, all right, Tim, kick your left leg up, your right leg back, right leg over and back. Now I measure the distance between that arrow and the bus cables. I fucking promise you it's different. And that is the problem with fixed plates. It, you just change your tune because your body position changed. And when you change your tune, well, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's exactly correct because you can't maintain your alignment and a, a fixed blade is going to get penalized way more than a mechanical in that, in that situation. Broadheads are always going to take off opposite of the paper tear. So if you want to test something, shoot through paper. One of the things I'm so adamant about learning, people need to learn how to tune their arrows. You know, I'm over here, got a guy over at my house last week, and he's a guide for Doyle Moss and good friend. And, you know, he's been shooting archery for a long time. And, uh, uh, but, you know, he's just a guy. He's a guide. He's a hunter. He doesn't have any, I won't even bring up the bow because, you know, I talked about it already. It's such a piece of garbage. And, and it just got an award by Outdoor Life, so go figure. I wonder how much that cost him in advertising. <laughs> um, but such a piece of junk. You know, you couldn't tune it. And he's sitting here. He's going on a Cape Buffalo hunt, and he's, he's – we got finally got the, the weaker spined arrow to tune, and and but the 200 he wanted to shoot the Cape Buffalo with has still got a little bit of a tear in it because that's what happens. When you have lock travel, the, the stiffer arrow is going to show you that. Just because you're hiding it with a weaker arrow doesn't mean your bow's tuned, okay? And that's a, that's a fallacy that people have. They, the, the bow manufacturers will blame the arrow because it'll tune with one and not with the other. But if the knock travel's bad enough, it won't tune with either one of them, okay? So if, if you know, he, he's sitting here making concessions, well, that'd be good enough. No, it won't. When you put a big fixed plate on the front of that thing and you got a three-quarter inch left tear, you're standing here in a perfect conditions, upright, perfect form in front of paper, and I know at 40 yards, that thing's gonna plane off a good solid 12 inches. So what's gonna happen if you're under the heat of the moment and you make an even worse shot that translates into a inch and a half paper tear, now that sucker's take, really taken off on you. So you're only, you're, you're only, uh, lines of defenses to add more fletching, which in turn adds more noise. And noise is what the animals jump coming out. It's my, one of my biggest complaints about shooting fixed blades in a hunting scenario is that I, number one, it requires me to run more fletching. More fletching is more noise. I had an elk one time. It was a long shot up in Idaho, head down feeding, perfect quartering away shot. I touched that shot off. He picks his head up. You can just see this bull locate the arrow and then dodge it. I'm like, are you kidding me? 
Well, the only reason he heard it was because it had four freaking blazers on it because I had to have four blazers to control the freaking fixed blade on the front of it. <laughs> and I was shooting eight-inch groups, six, eight-inch groups at 100 yards of that setup. And that, that I just can't, in my own analyzation, cannot see any redeeming value of a fixed blade broadhead. Fixed blade broadheads are like, in target archery are the guys that shoot blade rests. They don't trust a drop away, so they shoot a blade. Yet I've seen way more blades break and fail than I've ever seen a Hamsky drop away break and fail. Now, that being said, I've seen a whole bunch of people put a Hamsky rest on their on their bow and in a very sketchy setup that's doomed to fail. So a lot of it's just application, you know. Steve Cobreen, you know, I don't know if you know Steve, do you? I, I know who he is. I've never met him. Steve is probably one of the most renowned bow hunters in all of Africa. He now lives in the States. He's got a little bow fishing company called uh, Vader Bow Fishing. And he'd be a super interesting guy for you to get on your podcast. This guy has killed more SCI world records with a bow than anybody in history. He's opened lots of countries up in Africa to bow hunting. You know, I think he told me he's killed 60 species with a bow that no other white guy has. You know, he's, uh, he's just this quintessential British explorer mentality, you know. Yeah. And of course, you know, when he's managing properties over there in Africa, they, they have to shoot a lot of animals just to call them, you know? And so he was doing tests on Impala, which are very skittish and very jumpy. And he's, and he kept ordering these, uh, vein tech super spine veins. And I'm, I'm like, dude, do you think that's big enough? He said, let me tell you what he said. I did this test because I had to know, I want to know if they're jumping the sound of the air or they're jumping the sound of the bow. So, I would film these Impala shooting at a target away from the blind and they wouldn't even move. And then I'd shoot at them. And he said, it's like two complete different reactions. And I got to thinking about that. And you think about three or four of us standing around in a group and there's a bumblebee flying in, we're all dodging. We don't see it, but we're, we're wired to move away from that sound. Well, an animal's no different. They're wired to move away from that progressively louder sound that's coming out of them. They're way faster than you or I. So, so that's my two cents on that subject. Well, I think that, um, you know, with with all of this, like um, I, you and I are in a different position because we got 120 yard ranges at the house and a pro shop. But the general vein that I'm not a big fan of, you know, is a blazer that that a lot of companies pre fletch when you when you get your uh, when you get your arrow. That That's personal preference. I, I'm not a not a big fan of that. uh that vein personally, um, you know, so when you get to test things, right. And you, and you know, I do some redneck testing, Tim, go stand by the 40. I'm going to shoot at 80. Just tell me which one's loud as hell. Super simple, right? Like, all right. Well, I think, I think in, in some ways, like people do not realize, like I did this to gritty once. And I mean, safe or unsafe, I was telling him, cause I had an elk duck, the, the arrow on a, on a recurve. And it was a, I had five, inch feathers, three, five inch feathers. So I flung wow. an arrow about 15 yards away from him by him. Dude, he hit the fucking ground like a sniper hit him. And I, he, I was like, I told you they're loud. Right. And he was like, good God. Well, I don't think people really realize even like on broadheads when you, you know, different broadheads like that noise coming in an animal. And I, I do believe they hear the bow to a certain degree too, if you have a loud one, but the, the sound sure. of that arrow is, huge. Right. And so 
with that, the sound of the arrow, if you're also lobbing logs and you have an every arrow, you've set yourself up for failure. Well, yeah, yeah. And most people, honestly, with their level of archery skill, need more vein than, than less vein with, you know, with fixed blade broadhead. So it's, it's really one of the reasons I shoot the broadhead that I shoot with this thorn is the fact that I can run four 1.8 veins, okay? I run four 1.8 parabolic you know uh, they're the griff x q2i's and i've kind of torn i need i need to go out and do a little bit of testing between their low profile shield cut and that one just noise have somebody shoot them by me and just so i can get a sense i i, I think at some point i'm splitting hairs but um it's fun to play though i have play, though. i have shot a white tail up in montana facing me 32 yards and he never twitched, took it right up the front and right out the back. I mean, hit the dirt at an, at the same angle it was launched. You know, last year in Kansas, I had a buck. It, it was different though, because this buck was locked on me. Okay. He was literally, I drew, we were rattling on the ground and I was only, God, I can't remember how far I was. I think I was around 40 yards, but um, I was just trying to edge my way. I seen this buck coming and I thought I was just trying to cut the distance a little bit because my buddy's in the, in the brush rattling and this buck's just on a rope, you know, and, but he saw me right when I drew and he pinned me. Well, then he's got a visual of that arrow the moment it leaves the, the bow. Right. And he ducked a little bit. I didn't aim low and he took it right through the top of the shoulders, but um, right through the withers, you know, and he showed back up on the feeders a couple weeks later. But, uh, you know, it's just you, you're not going to win every battle. But No, but setting, to, setting yourself up to win every one is the key that I'm trying to get the yeah. point across. So. Yeah, I try to be very – yeah, I try to be very purposeful on how I set my rig up, okay? And I just, like, again, I don't see any redeeming value. I mean, I, you know, there's, I think a lot of guys shoot those, what was that broadhead that's made over there in Colorado, the little bitty fixed blade? Uh, iron will. Iron wheels, yeah. And I, and I agree, they're probably a good penetrating head, you know, but there's lots of good penetrating heads. I mean, I think the Grim Reapers that are made a mile from my house, the, the Hades and their Hades pros are, because the profile and the point, I always use a litmus test. If I had to shove that through, through my hand, which one would go through the easiest? <laughs> you know, and that's it. I, that's why I don't really like the whole single bevel thing. I don't really like get makes no sense to me other than you're trying to deflect off a of rib bones without going through them or something. I don't know. Um, makes not a lot of logical sense to me. Yeah. The single bevel the thing is, I can't wrap my head around either. And I've got to shoot a lot of shit with both and I just don't, I'm not shooting at a leg bone. Right. So I just don't get the whole bone splitting thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't really like pick broadheads to split bones. I try to miss bones. That's why I pick broadheads to miss bones. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, well, I, I will you know. say that iron will is, is an unbelievable broadhead. I've killed a ton of stuff with it. It's super sharp. Um, oh, I, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But, but where I was going with that is, is I don't see any redeeming value because in order for me to shoot a fixed blade accurately, I got to shoot a small fixed blade, which means a small hole. And I, in all my years of bow hunting, 
just like Jake Jacobson. I said, it's like, Timmy, that was the craziest blood trail I've ever seen in 50 years of bow hunting. That's what a rear deploy mechanical gives you. It puckers the tissue in front of the broadhead. So when the blades actually hit it, you're blowing a bigger hole in the actual cut diameter. So you have, in the Army, we used to refer to it as a sucking chest wound. Well, if that hole's big enough, guess what? All the oxygen's getting into the lungs and they can't make it. And that you can't plug it. But you could plug a smaller fixed blade hole or the animal can and get, you know. Gain distance you know, away they from can, you. They can yeah. Well, it, one of the, yeah, one thing that I look at is like elk, okay? A lot of times we shoot elk right at dark because that's when they're active, right? And the whole herd blows and you're like, well, where did he go? If I have blood right where I hit him, I got a lot better chance of getting on that bull. Shoot him with a small fixed blade, and sometimes they may go 150 yards before they leave any blood. Especially if you, you know, hit that him high. I killed Montana a couple years. Yeah, well, that bull I killed Montana a couple years ago with that thorn. I had blood within five yards of where I hit him. I picked it up instantly, followed it right to the edge of the, you know, the the crest of this ridge, and it drops off pretty hard. And I just expected to see him pop piled up in a ball on the other side, right? Well, I look all the way to the bottom. It's like 350, 400 yards, and there's a bull down there. I'm like, God, that can't be my bull. And I threw up, and I seen blood on the side of him. I'm like, holy shit. And then I started questioning myself, you know? And, uh, but it was the fact that I had blood right there, right now, that I could get on in two minutes that really, you know, give me the opportunity to see him and then know where to go reassess, you know, reattack the blood trail. And, uh, I just, you know, I just feel like you give up flight, you give up hole size, you give up n noise control. You just give up so much. And there's so many good mechanicals. There's some bad ones. Don't get me wrong. I test everything, you know, and you should test your, you know, you know, we used to in the in the old days, well, still do. I still would with some models. I'd glue the blade shut with super glue and do your practicing with it. And I picked the broadheads. So like one of the reasons I love the thorns so much is because of the practice system. Okay, I can tune my arrows with the broadhead at the same exact length of what I'm shooting. I can sight them in with that, so I get no surprises when I pull one out of the quiver. Okay. So I had done a test with these other broadheads and I would glue the blade shuts and I'd shoot a four inch group at a hundred yards, four or five inch group, just real tight. Then I would, I know enough to just take four, you know, sacrifice four or five of them and shoot them. Well, my group at a hundred yards was like two feet. So what's happening? Well, the blades are coming open, obviously. Um, had that happen with some, uh, some old G5s, Striker or uh, Tekans or whatever they were, the little three blade. Man, they shot good. The practice blade shot awesome. Groups just blew up with a hunt mode. And so people really need to, to double check themselves, you know, with that system. And I've always gravitated towards broadheads that gave me a practice system. Okay. Uh, you know, your, 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 what are the G5 uh, has the, uh, the dead meat and the, uh, What's that big two blade they have? Uh, Havoc. Havoc, yeah, they got a dead meat, yep. mega meat, and Havoc. Yep. Yeah, so they have a uh, you know they have a practice blade. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've I've tested it. I trust their test broadhead about as much as I until I've tested. I don't trust it at all ever. 
just because one person says one thing, I never trust it. Okay. Um, but I just can't see anything to get me away from, you know, the kill zone was my next favorite choice because their practice plate blew exactly like the, uh, the, the actual hunt, you know, the, the, the head and hunt mode. Now the original, the reason I bought kill zones originally was that little yellow practice broadhead that used to come with them. Well, guess what? They didn't fly like the broadhead and they looked almost identical, but at a hundred yards, you'd lose, or you, you know, that, that broadhead was, or the practice plate was a little bit more efficient and it would gain four or five inches on you, you know? So when they came out with that blade insert into their regular head, then it, it flew exactly the same. And so there's just, I'm pretty picky about, you know, what broadheads I, I shoot. You know, I prefer rear deploys. I've shot some blood sport night theories. There's a broadhead down in Arizona that's pretty popular. The guy that actually built that Bloodsport Night Fury uh, designed it. They put a big cutting tip blade on the front of it, which, yeah, well, it's more of cutting, but I just don't see any need for it per se. Yeah, well, and I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm, I don't think you're gaining what you're losing. You're not gaining enough cutting diameter for what you're losing by adding that planing surface to the front of the head. Yeah, and I would say the only redeeming when I say only, obviously. The, the fact people with the mechanical, they say, hey, they can fail or what I just with the newer high end broad mechanical broadheads, I don't have that issue. You know, you rubber bands or whatever, obviously, like there's different opening methods. But I mean, the only thing like brass tacks of it where where I really see a fixed blade broadhead winning and this is not really an arguable point. I don't think you would argue it. If you're shooting in Nick brush, you uh, a mechanical can open early where you will not have as much of a deflection on a fixed blade uh, as yeah. you would as a mechanic. So, yeah, so I'm going to Africa in December, and the guy, one of the animals we're going to try to kill is a uh, reed buck. He says, well, you need to be able to shoot into the grass like maybe a meter or so, and it'll up your odds. I said, well, I think I'm pretty sure I can do that real well with a thorn. Um but you know he 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 recommended a two blade or fixed blade for for that particular application and yeah i, I would agree that that would but, be the only one that i would really say yeah i i get it and cuz again teaching the, all these classes and q and a's when pe- people ask me you know this is with a compound with a with a recurve obviously fixed blades but you know the 220 inch buck and uh, over the hill world is ending. What broadhead are you choosing? I'm like a mechanical choosing mechanical. All right. Why? Okay. Aero flight, you know, um, let more forgiving wind drift, bigger hole. Those are the big ones. And when you've, if you've guided a lot and, and I'm probably getting 50, 60 clients a year, blood trail is, is huge. And you don't realize how big it is until you've done it, you know, 25 out of 50 times where I'm on my knees looking for, you know, for, for blood. So, you know, Yes, obviously pros and cons, but but when you when you are blood trailing, you hit one in the stomach, you catch one in the liver, or, or whatever, a bigger hole is just hard to beat. And you know, well, you only get one entry. Well, not always. A lot of times, you get two, an entry and an exit. You know, or you only get one hole. You know, for for so for me, in a certain case, if I only have one, two and a quarter, two and a half inch entry with the rear deploying, a, a two inch usually get two and a half hole, no exit. I would prefer that if all I'm hitting is small and large intestines on the inside rather than two 
holes personally. And so for people that, you know, that's, a, and I've, that's just over time. I've, I've, I've would rather have one giant hole because of the devastation it's doing on the inside of the animal where the exit's not as important to me. I like to having that, but. I, I always go back to that. Um, sucking kiss wound. Okay. <laughs> you know, I remember an IBP course I took in Alaska and the guy was like, you know, what kills the animal? And everybody's like, well, they, they bleed to death. He's like, blah, 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 blah. That's not really what puts an animal down. Okay. What puts the animal down is lack of oxygen to their brain. Okay. So the fastest way to get oxygen out of their brain and, you know, put the rear naked choke on them is a sucking chest wound, you know, you take their air away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and again, like whatever, not to beat the horse to death, but it's a personal preference, but I would just weigh out sure. both, right? Weigh them, weigh yeah, out. Yeah. Exactly. It's, uh, you can kill deer with, you can literally kill deer with any broadhead on the market, elk, anything. But, you know, the reason I make my choices is based on, you know, accuracy first, what shoots well at high speed, what, you know, what's going to keep my, so-called ballistic coefficient higher. What's going to keep my velocity up at distance? It's not veins, I promise you. So whatever I can shoot, that's going to limit the the noise and keep the speed of my arrow up at distance. According to the ranch theory, that's 800 freaking grains. But anybody that's shot archery for more than five freaking minutes understands that you can take two sight tapes, 20 to 100, one with a 500-grain arrow and one with a 350-grain arrow, and the difference in that gap is only going to be about probably a half a yard to a yard. That's it. So that's a that's a crap argument. And Joel Maxfield went through all that that data and some really good testing and, and yes, momentum does make a difference, but it's so far past the realm of normal archery yardage that it's irrelevant. Like and if you take if you take a three hundred or a three hundred and fifty, a four hundred fifty and a five hundred fifty grain arrow and you do penetration tests, the lighter arrow almost always wins. And that's because it's taking more energy from the buck, especially like at 20 yards. That decay of velocity hasn't even begun to happen. And if you take a 350 grain arrow, you gain about one foot per second for every three grains of arrow weight. You take a 550 grain arrow, however, and it takes about five grains of arrow weight to get one foot a second. Well, then the reverse argument is, well, it takes more more to stop that mass. Well, it takes a lot more to get that mass into motion. That's why you're wasting some of the bow's energy to get that mass into motion. That's why the, the faster arrow, you know, out penetrates. And I, I kind of did these tests originally. We were doing a video for, for Goldtip Arrow University, and I set a test up with 5575s and the so-called penetration arrow at the time, a full metal jacket, and not one time, and this is a brand new block target, and then the guys will argue, well, the median of the target, I did it five freaking times per each arrow, and not one time did the full metal jacket out penetrate the 5575s. In fact, two or, two or three of the times, the 5575 actually out penetrated the full metal jacket and we were shooting an easy pull point on the front of it which has quite a bit bigger bulge to it so 
I just think, you know, you, you weigh the pros and the cons, and the cons to a bow hunter's speed outweighs within reason. You like 280, I like 320. Yeah, there's, I spend my life shooting unmarked, three, unmarked 3D. Uh, there, I understand the value of speed. There's, there's The thing is that when people hear you and I talk that there's nothing wrong with either one, it is the one you're comfortable sure. with is what matters. That is what matters. Sure. And sure. That, I, I, I've spent my career splitting hairs, right? Yeah. I could shoot the same setup for ASA as I do for IBO, but I don't. I tweak the setup to give myself the most advantage possible. The the only so that's thing is my nature too. Yeah, the only thing I would add to this is if you're going to shoot a higher speed bow, you it it becomes more critical. You really need to learn to tune it. It become you know because oh, that, that that thing's coming out of the bow, bow so fast. And so I don't want to keep you on here forever, but I do. If you have a few more minutes, we won't get into sight leveling because that'll be another hour. But tuning wise, when when mm-hmm. when when people when you. When you go to set your bow up, you go to a pro shop, you know, you walk in, they get everything together, and then you walk out shooting a bullet hole. That's kind of the general concept of a pro shop. When you really are... Yeah, a lot, <laughs> yeah, a lot of pro shops is you walk in and you walk out your with your bow that they shot a bullet hole with. Yeah, that is that is true. Um, when when you start breaking... Yeah, it's a lot different when it's in your hand. When you, when you, when you start breaking down tuning or micro-tuning... Um, when you, especially when you're, you know, really shooting farther distances and things like that, you know, people have asked me about the yoke tuning and shimming cams, you know, left or right. And you, you know, as, as a whole, right. As a base way to look at it, if you're tearing left, you're tearing weak as you're, if you're tearing right, you're tearing stiff, uh, knock high, knock low. It's pretty simple, but it, there's a lot I, more. I, okay. Okay. I'm going to stop you right there. Well, let me finish. Tearing knock left has nothing. Let, okay. Let me finish. So tearing knock left. Go ahead. So, well, I'm just, as, as a whole, would you agree that that is the general idea of what is pushed across the archery universe? Well, yeah. Okay. So, you're right. but there's, well, no, and this is why, let me finish. As a whole, that, you know, tear left weak, tear right stiff, knock high, knock low, but there is a lot more to it than that. And so when you, when you start to break down as far as like, okay, what the why, okay, if I'm tearing left, am I tearing weak? Uh, or, or what Tim's going to dive in here, which will be good. There is more to it than then just simply let me just bump the rest, or let me and go ahead and take it from here. But in, as a whole, I would say that is what it's looked at in the outdoor or archery community. That simple, but there is a lot more to it than that. Okay, first thing I would tell people to do is I have laid out an eleven video tuning series on Gold Tips YouTube channel. That is my tuning process. I correlate left tear, right tear, up tear, down tear. I correlate bare shaft tuning, broadhead tuning all into the same chart. So you understand how they relate to each other. And it's everything I do. It's like, it's not rocket science. It's all laid out there. It's given to you. So you should, you know, take the time to go at least put that into your repertoire. A left tear to me simply says the knock is sitting left of the point when the string loaded it up. That's it. A right tear is the opposite. An up tear is the is it sitting above center and the, the down pair is it's sitting below center. And that's simply because all cam systems are not created equal. Um, one cam may be pulling more string 
you know, the bottom cam may be pulling more string than the top cam or gathering more string. So, you know, there's ways, there's certain cams you got to, some bows just make it easy. I'm just, I've got a two bow tech horn. Uh, it's just unbelievable how much easier it is once you've tuned a deadlock cam system with a flex guard, then this bow that won this so-called award from one of the outdoor magazines, probably because they paid enough money in advertising to get it. And uh, it's a bow that you would take and put a twist in one yoke and take a twist out of another yoke and it would derail, you know, just absolute horrible engineering from people that don't understand archery. Okay. You know, the best, best setups are ones that are built and designed by engineers working with competitive archers. That's where you get the best products. Okay. Um, or, you know, engineers that have some competitive archery background. Um, but just because I shoot a stiffer arrow like this guy had over here that night, he, you know, he shoot that 200 spine arrow and he get, I don't remember, it was a left tear. It was a right tear, actually. Um, and then we'd shoot a weaker arrow and we'd shoot a little bit closer to a bullet hole. You still have that fundamental misalignment of the power stroke of the string and the arrow. What's happening, though, is the weaker arrow is just kind of flexing and kind of hiding some of it. Whereas if you were to clean up the knock travel and fix the problem at its roots, you will be driving the power stroke of the string dead down the center of the arrow. Imagine a, a guy throwing a, a spear with an atlatl, right? Okay. You, you understand what that is? I know what an atlatl is, yes. Okay. So an atlatl is just a, a thing they hold on to and throw the spear. And they, they, the spear is held on the, on the very end in this throwing thing. And so the idea is that they're trying to throw the, the power right down the back of that spear. Now, same thing when they throw like javelins, the reason they have to have a certain flex in these spears and these javelins is because the person throwing, it's not perfect, right? Same thing. A finger shooter has to have a weaker spine arrow because it's inducing all this knock travel into the system, right? So you have to have a weight, a band-aid around it. But there's also a reason why finger shooters aren't as accurate as, you know, compound bow with release. Because we can control all those variables. You know, I, I heard, I was watching this, somebody, probably you said to me, their Ranchberry video where he had this aeronautical engineer on there. And he's talking about the yaw, the this, and the this corrects that, this corrects this. And I'm like, yeah, dude, but we tune all that out, Okay. When my bow hits four or five yards, it's about as clean as it gets. When my arrow is, you know, through the paper and, you know, at five yards, mine's shooting the cleanest tear ever, and you can just keep walking back, and it's just pinhole, 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 right? And so we're tuning a lot of that out. But tuning is just a function of alignment, okay? It's alignment of the power stroke of the string and the arrow. And the reason, just because you've got a left tear and a right bare shaft and you put a stiffer arrow and it starts to clean it up doesn't mean it's stiff or a weak arrow. It just means it's just another way of abandoning the problem or, or tuning. It's the way we used to tune old school days. And that's where all these tune charts and spine selection charts come from, okay? It's just kind of a statistical data, best case scenario, but... You can take two different manufacturers with the same arrow and one might shoot a right tear and one might shoot a left tear. So what does that tell you? It's not, it's not the arrow, okay? It's the alignment of the power stroke of those two systems. That's why if you look at my tune charts, 
I might tell you to make a cable guard adjustment. So if I increase the load on the cable guard, I just change where the string lines up with the back of that arrow. Because when you draw a bow back, the cable guard takes the load. So if you've got a bow that's got a roller guard that holds the cable clear up against the riser, you're creating a lot more torque load, okay? If you want to look at bows when you're buying them, you want something that's really forgiving, one of the things that you should look at is draw a line from the back of the limb pocket to the back of the other limb pocket and see how far or where the grip position is in relation to that, okay? Like my Bowtech target bows, the grip is in front of the limb pocket, okay? On my hunting bow, it's kind of right in line, but I I was working on a bow the other night and the grip's sitting, or actually it was at this tournament this weekend, one of the guys are shooting a, a radical fast bow and the grip's sitting three inches behind the pivot point in the limb. And that's what we talk about in, in Bowtech, we call it center, center pivot limb design limb pocket design and that just makes it more forgiving to shoot okay it may make it slightly slower their speed is never free you don't ever get speed free you either got to pull a harder cam you got to you know create torque and and create a system that's harder to shoot or you got to preload the limbs which makes the limbs more prone to failure there's just there's no such thing as free speed right best way to get free speed is just to pull a little bit more poundage honestly with a smoother bow for you know hunting application you know so I mean that's kind of my take on tuning it's extremely important there's one guarantee is that the broadhead always will steer opposite the paper tip and you're wasting your time to bear shaft tune your arrows it does not work I did a video on my Instagram channel where I took 24 arrows and I tuned them all bear shaft pinholes and I fletched them with just a 1.8 vein okay and I knew that it would change the tune. It did change the tune about a half an inch. So telling me, number one, you're going to tune bear shaft and then go to fletch shaft, you just change the tune, okay? And if you add more, like, hunting weight veins, it's going to be even more. Depends how hard you're pushing the arrow. And, but what I was more looking for is, did it, when I added the fletching, did they still maintain the consistency of their tune? And they did not, Okay. I still had to retune all of those arrows through paper. You know, some of them, do they just change dynamically, you know, how that arrow reacts, okay? So it's very particular, you know, it's very important to shoot the arrow in the exact configuration that you're gonna hunt with. If you've got a half inch long broadhead or a half inch long field point and a inch and a half long broadhead, they're not gonna tune the same. Well, okay? I- might be fine for 30 yard white tail bow hunting or 40, but if you're trying to go steep and deep, it ain't going to work. Yeah. And, and with this, like without going like into the crazy, crazy, like minutia of the, the details here. So when, when, you, when you're, when you're looking at this and Tim talked about alignment, you know, the knock being left or right of the, the broad head. Right. And so people will, will shoot uh, an arrow through and it'll, it'll tear left and they'll immediately drop mm-hmm. a spine. More than most likely, yeah, it's still going to tear left. Um, right. Sorry. And, and Maybe slightly less. Yeah, sli- I mean, definitely. Well, I say definitely. You drop a whole spine, it should tear a little bit left, but you're not really f- necessarily fixing the problem. And there's a lot to this. And and Tim and I, I think, agree on most of this stuff. So, okay. Well, go ahead. Yeah, you're adding another problem. When you go weaker, you're, now you're taking an arrow that just simply won't react as consistent to each other. That's one of the problems that finger shooters have, and one of the ugly secrets that nobody understands is how many how many arrows these Olympic-level archers actually cull 
It's a lot. Well, 40, 50% of the arrows, they call them because they just don't want to shoot with each other. And that's what happens when you shoot weak arrows. Yeah. And so when you, when you talk about shooting weak arrows, if you photograph this and what Tim talked about at, uh, you know, at five yards and I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit closer than that when I'm firing through the paper, as far as where I want it, I, I prefer a little bit stiffer setup because the oscillation or the flex of the arrow, I want it to stop faster. And so when you shoot heavier point weight, you may shoot a bullet hole at five yards, but if you photograph or film the arrow, it is still flexing like crazy out at 15, 20 plus yards. Um, Are you agreeing with me on most of this so far, Tim? Well, yes. What I notice when I get too heavy of a point because I'm always operating on the end of week because at my drawing, even a 250 spine arrow at 74 pounds is too weak. So if I go from 120 to total weight to 140, all of a sudden I can't make the arrows shoot with each other. Right. At, at your, at your, well, at your ability to, to shoot, I would say most people I've, that I've had talked to me about that, they're, they're like, no, my, they're still grouping. Well, it, how good's the group, right? And that's where Tim is obviously a much, much better shooter. Tim's groups are much, much smaller. If you're hitting a paper plate at 50, you probably won't notice much of a difference. But that isn't super duper accurate. And that's where I talk about with the micro tuning, because people will watch me tune and think I'm going a little bit overboard. I know you do, or, or in their eyes. And, and that's when that micro tuning comes into play, because I want that arrow to be straight out of the bow within reason but i mean 10 feet is what i want 10 feet to to have that thing shoot a bullet hole and when i have a guy come in with 250 grains up front that arrow is oscillating or flexing so much that it takes so long for that thing to recover it it, i think it would amaze people if they watched it yeah it's just i always get the comment well i don't shoot as good as you well maybe if you did a few things that i did maybe you would well, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's something to to be said for that as far as like, you know, if, if you're, you're you're basing your whole arrow set up on hitting a scapula, um, maybe, you know, I, I, I've never met a good shooter that focuses on that. I guess that's what I'm saying. Maybe they're out there and I'm not trying to sound like a total dick. No. I'm just saying I've never met a tournament archer or a really good hunter that only focuses on a scapula. They focus on the, yeah, the bow. Even- Go ahead. Well, even trad shooters, the best trad shooters I know, the best trad hunters I know, don't go ultra heavy on arrows. I was, I don't know if you'd consider this ultra heavy. My, my happy home was like 565 to 580 on my stick bow arrow. Yeah, but, you know, you told me originally the reason you do that is because it puts you point on at a certain distance. 100%, same thing too. I, I am very effective, or when I say effective, I'm very comfortable with 280 out of my compound. And with that that system, that arrow, I was very one. I'm very much wanted my point on to be 36 to 40 yards. You know, within reason yeah, on the so, tune. That's why I did that. So, yeah, but when people when people hear you say it without quantifying that, what they hear you say is that you do it for penetration or you do it for this. When when in fact you do it more for for your point on aim than you do any other factor. So, well, I think what, I, I, you, what you just said there, Joe. Uh, so Joe Maxfield was hesitant to do a podcast with me. He hasn't done one because he thought he and I would argue. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
I don't know why, you know, he's like, well, cause you should like to shoot heavy FOC. And I'm like, I don't even know what my FOC is. Right. I just don't check it. And I think it's probably like you talked about context to, to what I do and why probably. Right. Exactly. Well, it's just, you know, setups are designed to solve the problem, the immediate problem at hand. If I shoot unmarked, I shoot speed as much speed as they allow me because that's going to help the most. Okay. To solve the immediate issue. Um, if I shoot known 3d, now I'm going to shoot the largest diameter I can to catch as many lines as I can at what I consider a forgiving speed, which might be 275 to 280. If I shoot field archery, I got to build an arrow that, you know, is not going to glance off as, as bad. It's going to be pretty good in the wind. It's going to catch the X line. If I shoot feet archery, my, my primary focus is what shoots good in the wind. Okay. So when I shoot hunting, it's kind of a balance of everything there within, you know, if I build a stabilizer for target, it's going to be different than my stabilizer for hunting because I would never want to pack that. Even though it's better, it's not practical. You know, I wouldn't want to pack that in the field hunting, you know, and I see, you know, one this guy that had this bow over here the other day, you know, that one tune, one of the things I did to it and right out of the gate was put a bunch of weight on the front of his stabilizer and that that actually cut the tear down because he had no weight on the front of a six inch bar. Well, when you take a critical bow that's loading up and rotating, it's going to rotate much faster with no weight than it will with weight. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it's just, you know, you want to educate yourself and become a student of the game. That's to me is the essence of, of hunting with a bow. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, you know, obviously shit talkers aside, I, I do know people really appreciate the more in-depth podcasts we do, you know, with this, which, um, we're hitting an hour and 50 minutes, so I should get off with you, but we'll, we'll have to knock out the, the site leveling podcast at a different time. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's things I want to throw your way. Um, the, well, sure. the situations I'm faced with that, that, that aren't, especially guiding, right? I, I got to wing it sometimes because we got to get out the door and get it as close as they can. But I, I think if you had time in the next couple, three weeks, month before season, if you had time to hop on for an hour and go over that, that'd be cool. Yeah, we're, we're going to start a boat or a, a gold tip podcast here, hopefully by the first of July. And they're going to keep me to 30 to 45 minutes. I'm not sure how we're going to pull that off, but uh <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, my advice would be to that. And obviously I I've done a lot of these is when you get someone like you and I on, or when I have Chris Rowe on a four hour podcast is accepted by, by many, they love it. And they just listen to on the way to work, on the way back to work. If you get a dud, yeah, well, 45 minutes is all you want. But when it's good info, it's like listening to a good book. You can't put it down. It's no different on a podcast. Right. Well, we, yeah, we talked about doing, if we get a good guy, we just do it series, like three set of three or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think but that's, I don't good, know. Yeah. What do I know? Well, uh, quite a bit. So I appreciate you hopping on and, and sharing some of your, uh, your knowledge on here. It's tr- truly appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate everything you do for the sport. And, you know, it's just, people just need to just take responsibility for themselves. Like when you say people that don't trust mechanicals, there's always a, whenever there's a mechanical failure, there's a people failure along with it. Somebody didn't do the work. They didn't do the work to proof a product out. They didn't do the work. They didn't troubleshoot what could go wrong. You know, when you look at my hamster arrow setup, it's built and designed not to fail. 
I, I approach people every single time, every single tournament, and and just question them. Top level pros. I look at their setup and I said, okay, look at this setup. Look at look at my setup. Which one's better? Yeah. And they they can't really argue. But so many people walk around just hoping nothing happens. Okay, because they don't. And I could, you know, it's just I don't know. You just you just gotta you gotta look at a, look at something and decide. Okay. What could go wrong here? Have I done the legwork? Do I fully trust what I'm doing? You know, and you know, I 100% trust everything that I shoot. And I just, like I said, I can't say enough about once you've tuned like with a deadlock cam system versus some of the other systems on the market, you're just like, holy crap, why do these people build this stuff? I mean, how do they decide? this is good enough. And I, I joke around that because I shoot some air rifle stuff too. And I told the guys that the one thing that I've learned over my career is never trust a manufacturer. Because one thing you have to understand about manufacturers are, is they all have to make concessions at some point. So if you want the best of the best, sometimes you just got to build it yourself or you got to have, you know, create the knowledge base to find the best products in the business. Yeah. Or, or willing hundred percent take one, willing to modify what you've got is another one. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, man, I appreciate it. I got to piss or I'm going to piss my pants in here, dude, but I really appreciate you hopping on everybody. Check <laughs> out Tim Gillingham, uh, check out the video series he did on uh, gold tips website. And, uh, definitely I'll, I'll help promote or whatever, when you guys get that podcast going for people to hop on. So thanks for everything, man. Sure. Yeah. We, well, we plan on having you on as a guest. So, um, if you'll do it and just kind of get some legs underneath it. And I've got a lot, a lot of good guests, a lot of people that nobody's probably have heard a lot of, you know, I want to just tell their stories, you know, and, you know, get their, their take from their angle. So, but, uh, should, should be a fun, fun thing, you know? Yeah, I'm excited. It'll, I think it'll be really good because I, I know who you're, a lot of those people you're talking about. And uh, just because they don't have 100,000 followers doesn't mean they're not killers and full of knowledge. And I know you get, you can pull those people sure. in. So that'll be good. Yeah. Yeah. Initially, we'll try to just get some people on that can get some legs underneath the podcast. And then we'll start bringing on some, some guys that a lot of you may never have heard about that have a story, that have some credibility. And you need to hear, you know, what they have to say. So. No, it'll be good. So, all right, dude, I got to piss my pants. All right, I'm going to talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> See ya. See you, man.